Today's scripture reading is from Luke 24, verses 44 through 53. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to, Christ. to Christ. Thanks, Tyler. Appreciate that. Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Scott, uh, if we have not had a chance to meet yet, and uh, hope you'll join us for the party afterwards. And uh, before we get to that, and before we get to the Lord's Supper, um, it's my privilege, as it usually is, to unpack the scripture that was just read to us. We're in the middle of a series right now that we're calling Love Supreme, and uh, this series uh, is going through the different uh, what we're calling anchor doctrines of the Protestant Reformation, which began 500 years ago this year. And uh, this week, we're going to start a three-week section on the anchor doctrine of sola Christus, or in Christ alone. Salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. It was John Calvin who first wrote about what we know now as the the, uh, threefold offices of Christ. Jesus Christ is prophet, He is priest, and He is king, and He's the fullest expression that the universe has ever known of all three of these offices. And so, the next three weeks, we're going to cover each of these offices of Christ, and this week we're going to talk about Christ as prophet, or Jesus Christ as God's uh, authoritative, superior voice to human beings, to humanity, to the whole world, and and, and even to the, the whole universe, to people, places, and things. Jesus is the prophet. So, Uh, In the Bible, there were all kinds of other prophets who spoke on behalf of God to the people. Some of them spoke directly to kings and rulers. Others spoke to the people in general. Uh, Many of them were men, uh, like Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and so on. Uh, And uh, the apostles could be considered prophets as well as they gave us the New Testament. Many of the prophets were also women. Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron, Deborah, who was also a ruler and judge of Israel, Huldah, and uh, in the New Testament we see Anna as a prophetess, uh, among many others. All of these had a few things in common. Uh, First, they were all inspired by God. Their words carried weight, they carried force, they carried authority because their words came from God. Uh, And all of them also received mixed responses from people. Some of them 
received the response of thanksgiving and humility and, and even repentance. We see this uh, in King David, for example, when the prophet Nathan comes to him and calls him out for uh, his abuse of power, which led to adultery and murder and other such things. Others respond with ambivalence, like the people of Israel often did to the prophet Moses while they were in the wilderness, just sort of nonplussed, bored with the message. And then others responded, perhaps like Jezebel did, uh, the, the, the queen and wife of, of King Ahab, uh, with hostility, uh, wanting to destroy and kill and silence and shut down the voices of the prophets because their words were disruptive to the status quo. They spoke truth to power, and power didn't like that. But at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, we see a new era of the prophetic word to the human race being instituted. When Jesus is crucified, He dies, He's buried, He's resurrected, he, He ascends to heaven, and then He sends the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit works through the apostles and the prophets to, to give us the letters of the New Testament. And, and, and now the letters of the Old Testament and New combined, 66 uh, books or letters combined together, are our prophetic word uh, given to us in Scripture. So if you want to know the mind of God, get your nose in the Bible as often as you can, but also read it with a very specific set of lenses. Every letter, every sentence, every paragraph, every book is both inspired by Jesus so as to tell us also about Jesus. Verse 44, Christ says it plainly, everything is written here about me, Jesus says, in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and the Psalms, and it all must be fulfilled. And so, what I want to do is explore under three headings <clears throat> the prophetic ministry of Christ. And, and, and the headings are these. He's more than a teacher. He's also a revealer and a transformer. He's more than a teacher. He's also a revealer and a transformer. So, first, more than a teacher. He's according to Christ. And you've got to decide whether or not you're going to buy into His claims. But his claim is this, that he is the, not a, but the source and the center of all truth, of all true teaching. Everything written, he says, these are my words. You are witnesses, he says to his followers, to his disciples, of me. I'm the king of all kings. I'm the teacher of all teachers. I'm the authority above all authorities. I'm the, the superior one above all superior voices. And so, the purpose of Scripture, the purpose of preaching is the same as it was when it came out of Christ's mouth, to direct the heart, to direct the soul, to direct the mind, to direct the will to this. Verse 46, that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. The, the purpose of prophecy 
is to point to Christ. That's the purpose. You know, he put it this way, Jesus did in John 14, 6. This is, this is a claim that, that is both comforting to those who believe and, and also maybe perplexing or even deeply offensive to those who don't. Where Jesus says, I am the way, not I am a way, but I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, so, so this is an authority claim that Jesus makes as prophet. It's also implied in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you've heard it said. You know, you've, you've, heard, you've heard all these different teachers and rabbis and, and, and gurus and, 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 and spiritual authorities. You, you've heard it said. You've, you've heard what's been taught by these different groups and tribes of people. You've, you've heard it said, but I say to you, but I say to you, but I say to you, Jesus says all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, as if to say every truth claim, every moral imperative, every philosophy, every politic is under the scrutiny and under the judgment, ultimately, of Jesus Christ, who is the truth. It's an authority claim, but it's also a superiority claim. It's as if Jesus is saying that other teaching, Muhammad's Quran, Buddha's sayings, Hinduism's book of knowledge, it's all beneath and is all under the scrutiny of Jesus as prophet, who's claiming absolute, exclusive authority to be the sole source in the universe and the sole arbiter in the universe of that which is true and that which is beautiful. And so, think about Think about the fact, just for a moment with me, that not all people agree with these statements of Jesus Christ. In fact, most people don't agree with these things that Jesus said about Himself. Mahatma Gandhi was one of them. And Gandhi, if you read Gandhi's autobiography, Gandhi says there that he essentially had his entire or virtually his entire humanitarian ethic, and it, it's, it's unarguable that Gandhi did some great things for the world and was, was exemplary as, as a person of self-sacrifice, self-donation, um, uh, you know, lots of insight, lots of wisdom from Gandhi. But Gandhi himself said that, that, that virtually all of his humanitarian ethic came from the inspiration that he got from the teachings of Jesus Christ. And yet Gandhi, who grew up in a largely Christian environment, chose ultimately Hinduism as his, as his religion of choice. And here's one of the things that Gandhi said. He said, it was impossible for me to regard Christianity as a perfect religion or even the greatest of all religions. In other words, Gandhi had misgivings. Whatever they might have been, he had misgivings about Jesus Christ as the supreme authority. Even though he had great respect or esteem for Jesus as a good moral teacher, as an exemplary moral teacher. And this really is, I think, the posture of so many of us. I'm not sure I can buy into all of this authority talk, but a good moral teacher, I mean, I've read the Sermon on the Mount, I 
build my life. I like to think that I build my life around the golden rule which Jesus teach, taught, you know, do unto others as others as you would have others do unto you. So, I've got, I've got no problem at all with Jesus as a, a superior moral teacher. But in mere Christianity, I think, you know, C.S. Lewis rightly and prophetically challenges this thought that, that, that I can't take Jesus as master, but I will certainly look to Him as a good moral teacher. Lewis says in mere Christianity, some say I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept His claim to be God. That's one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and call him a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And let's just acknowledge for a moment, let's maybe push back on, on these ideas for a moment. As Jesus says, you know, superior, as Jesus, on Jesus' authority and so on. If we accept this teaching about Christ by Christ, if we accept these things that Jesus is saying about Himself, then we're saying, aren't we, that it rules out all the other religions, all of the other options out there. Isn't that narrow-minded? That is so non-egalitarian. That is so closed-minded. I mean, my truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. But that in and of itself is an absolute truth claim, isn't it? I mean, you're stuck, really. Whatever your worldview is, whether, you, whether you're ambivalent to, to, to the prophetic word like the Israelites were in the wilderness, whether you're, you're like David, responsive and grateful and repentant, or whether you're like Jezebel, uh, wanting to kill it and shut it down. Whoever you are, you're an absolutist. Even to say there's no such thing as absolute truth is to say that there is an absolute truth, that, that there's no such thing as an absolute truth. You're stuck. You have a religion. It's just not the religion of Jesus, but it's a religion. It's a creed and a code that you say you follow, but you're not consistent with it because you impose your absolute on, on other people. You know, maybe what Chesterton once said will be helpful to us when he said that the object of opening the mind or the point of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. Otherwise, it is more akin to a sewer, taking in all things equally. And this is to show no disrespect to worldviews that are based on something other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, there are a lot of intersecting points and overlapping points between Christianity 
and other worldviews. There's truth and beauty in Hinduism. There's truth and beauty in Islam. There's, there's truth and beauty in, in, uh, in Buddhism. There is, just like there was truth and beauty in the Stoic and Epicurean philosophies. As we see in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul himself is communicating with Greeks, with secular Greeks, affirming certain aspects of otherwise broken and toxic systems. As some of your Greek, you know, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and poets have said, and, and then Paul goes on to affirm the truth and, view, and beauty that's contained in these systems. But what he's also doing is he's saying that there are collision points, there are irreconcilable collision points between the gospel of Jesus Christ, between the prophetic word of Christ about Christ and all other religions and all other, other philosophies. And like Lewis said, you have to make your choice. Is he a lunatic? Is he the devil of hell? Is he a madman? Is he a poached egg? Or is he Lord and God? You've got to land somewhere, as Lewis says. This means no disrespect to other worldviews and philosophies and religions. You know, I had the privilege, <clears throat> thanks to uh, Beth Fidel and the leadership of, of, of crew at Vanderbilt, to be the Christian on the hot seat for a conversation this past week uh, on Vanderbilt's campus called Critiquing Christianity. And one of the questions was, is Christianity anti-intellectual? Is Christianity anti-intellectual? I mean, can we really believe in things like a virgin birth and a resurrection and walking on water and turning water into wine and so on? I mean, that, that sounds non-scientific. That sounds anti-intellectual. And I mean, isn't it culturally regressive to believe in all these different, you know, moral statements of, of, of Christ and the apostles about sexuality and about the use of money and, and so on? And when I received that question, it was so helpful to have history in my mind that reminded me and enabled me to say to the Vanderbilt students, very bright-minded Vanderbilt students, did you know that Vanderbilt was founded by Christians? Did you know that all of the Ivy League universities except for one were founded by Christian ministers and lay people or s scholars like C.S. Lewis, who was also from Oxford, historian from Oxford, or Jonathan Edwards, who you may not know this, was also a president of Princeton University, lauded by the secular Encyclopedia Britannica as the brightest mind to ever step foot on American soil, or all the, the brilliant scientists in our own community, the person who might end up curing cancer or Alzheimer's might be sitting in this room right now. And so you can't say it's anti-intellectual. You can't dismiss it that way. You have to make up your mind. You have to engage it. He's more than a teacher, but he's also a revealer. We will never embrace this. After all that arguing I just did, we will never embrace this. We will never embrace what intellectual titans like Lewis and like Chesterton and like Edwards did. unless what happens in verse 49 happens to us. Jesus sends the promise of His Father upon us 
clothing us with power from on high. He's talking about the Holy, the Holy Spirit. The only way we'll ever be positioned in our hearts and dispositioned in our hearts to receive the external Word of God that comes to us is to have an internal witness of the Holy Spirit confirming all that the Scriptures say about Christ. Christopher Hitchens, terrific example, very famous atheist, British journalist, highly intellectual man. You know, you don't reject Christianity because you're non-intellectual either, any more than you accept Christianity because you're non-intellectual. Christopher Hitchens is brilliant. You read any of his works, and and you'll, you'll, you'll pick this up very quick in the first paragraph. But like Gandhi, he was not convinced. Here's a quote from Hitchens, even if, even if I accepted that Jesus was born of a virgin, I cannot think that this proves His divinity or the truth of His teachings. And the same would be true even if He'd been resurrected. I mean, that's a, that's a, a bit of a chilling echo of what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, that there are some who even if they witness Him coming up from the dead will not believe. Do you realize that there were over 500 eyewitnesses to the risen Christ after He came up from the dead? The Apostle Paul writes about this in, in Corinthians, you know, to, to the antagonists of Christianity, and he said, you can talk to all these 500 people. You know who they are. You know where they are. Talk to them. They saw Christ risen from the dead. Over 500 people, and yet he only had 120 followers after his resurrection. How about that? So, that means maybe 380 of them were in the same boat as Christopher Hitchens. They did not believe because they could not. It says in verse 45 that Jesus opened their minds, and that's what persuaded them. Jesus opened their minds through the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Two things are necessary for you to, you know, as Lewis says, buy in and to fall at your feet and, and truly from your heart call Jesus Lord and God. Two things have to happen. First of all, you have to have the truth itself. You have to wrap your mind and your heart around content. A book, the prophetic word as revealed in all of the books of the Bible. But you also have to have a God-given ability to see it and to interpret it rightly. So, if I said to you this bottle is brown, and 2,000 of you look back at me and said, no, it's not. That's a green bottle. It would still be brown, even though I'm in the minority, even though I'm the only one who's calling this bottle brown, and 2,000 people looking back at me saying, it's not brown, it's green or yellow or whatever, it is still brown. And you may say, well, your interpretation is different than ours. And I will say to you, no, there are certain things that just aren't open to to interpretation. This is brown. You're either colorblind or you're just trying to pick a fight or you need corrective lenses. But this is brown. The Pharisees and the scribes, they knew their Bibles well. They knew the Scriptures better than anybody. But they also missed the entire point of the Scriptures. And that's why Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount to them, you've heard it said by all the scribes and the Pharisees and the rabbis, you've heard it said, but I say to you, but I say to you, but I say to you, 
Because what the scribes and Pharisees did was they looked at the Bible and they made it about them. They turned it into Aesop's fables. They turned it into a moral code of ethics that truly nobody can live up to. And then they relaxed the requirements of the law. They explained away the parts that they they didn't or wouldn't keep. They wanted to make it all about them, to give them leverage with God. You owe me because of all these rules I'm keeping, or or to give them a sense of superiority over their neighbors and other people groups who didn't share their partisan views. They wanted to make it about them. In comes Jesus and says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, it's about me. It's not about you. It's not about them. It's not about him or her. It's about me. And until you see that, you're going to remain completely lost. You know, James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote it this way, even the demons believe everything in the Bible. They just don't believe it in the right way. They see green when it's brown. You know, it's hazardous on the one hand to handle the Word of God when you don't have an ability to see its whole point, that Jesus is both its messenger and its message. It is also hazardous to ignore the Bible by looking within yourself. And this is where the Eastern religions err. The truth is inside of you. Look inside and and, and the truth will come out. Follow your heart, but this is so subjective. And if the whole world followed this follow your heart creed, then nobody would ever have any basis for legitimate conviction or legitimate moral outrage. You would never have any basis for being angry or upset about anything. Hitler is wrong. Well, who's to say? Says who? Racism is wrong. Says who? Abuse is wrong. Says who? Taxes being too high. It's wrong. Says who? See, you're in a really, really tough position If your philosophy is what's right for you is right for you, what's right for me is right for me, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, okay. Then if we're going to apply that consistently, then then let the world just just run on its own subjective, let let it run its own subjective course and see, see if it creates a more unified world. See if it creates more life, more community, more truth, more beauty, or see if it it creates chaos. It will create chaos because every time a planet in the solar system tries to replace the sun, which is really what we're talking about when you say look into your heart, everything's disrupted and the universe is in chaos. But to be able to see, back to the point, to be able to see what Lewis and Edwards and Chesterton and others did and that that Gandhi and and Hitchens didn't, it's not that you're smarter. You know, Christianity is ultimately a religion of little children, and Jesus said that. It's not that you're smarter. It's it's about what it says in Ephesians chapter 1. I pray the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom, that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, corrective lenses, no longer colorblind, that you may know what is the hope and the riches and the power of God. It's right here. Jesus opened their minds. The word here is dianoigo. And when you talk about opening something like a door, there there are two Greek words that you could have used. Anoigo, which means to open, or or dianoigo, which means to open through. Dianoigo is to open more forcefully. And the only reason why you would 
use the word dianoigo, which is the word that Jesus uses here, about opening a door is the door is locked. What Jesus is implying here is every human heart is locked. Every human heart is locked, and He has to break through in order for us to receive this. You know, as He says in John chapter 6, no one can come to Me. No one is able to come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. The Greek word there, the only other place that they they, they see that word used in ancient literature is drawing water out of a well. You're, You're pulling it up from a dark place and bringing it out into the light so that it can refresh the world. So, he's also a revealer and finally a transformer. Note how everyone is ignited with great joy. Their way of life is transformed. They go out in the world and they witness. They go out in the world and they tell about what the Lord has done for them. And it says they're worshiping continually. You know, the American average churchgoer, you know, once or twice a month. They were continually… They, they could not get enough of the community of God, the teaching of God, the prophetic Word of Christ. They couldn't get enough of it. They couldn't get enough prayer. They couldn't get enough life together. They couldn't get enough time with their noses in the Scriptures. They couldn't get enough. When the prophetic Word of Christ comes home, knowledge gets companions, and the companions are passion and hunger. Say you had a time machine. It took you 15 years back when the price of, a, uh, when the price of Apple stock was $1 per share, and you knew then what you know now, that it is currently worth around 155 per share, what would, you, what would you do? You would be thrilled. I'm going to be a gazillionaire in 15 years, and you would borrow money, you would steal, hopefully you wouldn't steal, but maybe you would. You would get as much money as you could, and you'd throw it into Apple stock, and you'd, you'd live in a closet for a few years if you had to, because you knew what was coming. Your whole life would be driven. You know, as the person in Matthew 13's whole life was driven, the kingdom of God is like a treasure in a field. When the dude figured out the value of that treasure, he sold everything he had and bought that field. Or the kingdom of God is like a pearl that's so priceless you can't put a value on it. You'd give everything you have to possess that pearl. You would arrange your entire life around that pearl. You know, I was speaking with one of our church members who's also a very, very accomplished uh, person in, in, in medicine. No intellectual slouch. And he asked me a question. He said, you know, you, you ever wonder why the excitement that you, you, you might experience when the predators make it into the Stanley Cup, and all the hooping and hollering that you, and dancing in the streets. You ever wonder why that doesn't, the hooping and hollering doesn't happen on Easter Sunday or on any Sunday or on every Sunday? I mean, don't you just think we all ought to stand up and say, this is true! It's true! Why don't we? Why are we so bored? Why are we so bored? Why why are we more driven by weekend sports 
and by the love of money, and by vacation homes, and so on. Why? Why? Maybe the Dianoigo hasn't happened yet. Maybe it's just not happened. You see? Because even the demons believe. Even the demons show up in church. This was Luther's experience. As a guilt-ridden monk, somebody asked him, do you love God? And he says, love God? I hate God. And then, Romans 1.17 happened to Martin Luther. The righteous shall live by faith. By faith in who? In Christ. Hear what Luther said after his eyes were opened, the eyes of his hearts were opened by the gospel. Luther's words, the gospel is nothing less than laughter and joy. The heart overflows with gladness and leaps and dances for the joy it has found in God. The Holy Spirit is active and has taught us the deep secret of joy. You'll have as much joy and laughter in life as you have faith in God. You will have as much joy in life as you have faith in God. And even if you're sitting there saying, well, I don't have this kind of faith, I wish I did. It's a sign that maybe you do. And even if you're sitting there saying, help my unbelief, maybe it's a sign that you already do. Let's pray. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may know the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and the hope of your calling and the power of your Spirit. Help us to see that everything written, everything true and beautiful, whether in the Law of Moses or the Prophets or the Psalms or in daily life itself, is about you. Amen.